If you ache for truth, goodness, and beauty, if you're hungry for a Christianity with substance and strength, if you long for a faith that's big and bold and biblical and all about Jesus Christ, if you're inspired by the idea of one church that has spanned 20 centuries, 24 time zones, and two hemispheres, enfolding every race, nation, and language, then you're considering Catholicism. Well, welcome to the podcast. My name is Greg Smith, your host, and I got back like, wow, like just under 36 hours ago from a pilgrimage to the Holy Land. Um, so I'm still uh, a little bit <laughs> discombobulated, uh, you know, not caught up in my sleep, trying to make the adjustments. But while it's still fresh in my mind, I wanted to record in this episode and the next something I'm just going to call Holy Land Diaries, some impressions and thoughts about the Holy Land, uh, Israel, uh, some of the things that we saw, and maybe some takeaways for those of you that are uh, considering Christianity or Catholicism, or maybe want to deepen your faith and understanding of the faith. So just a little background, we were there for about 10 days uh, from start to finish, and we had 37, 38 people in our group. Uh, we worked with a tour company that I've worked with for several years now that exclusively just does Catholic pilgrimages. Uh, around the world. Um, I've been with them in Europe, uh, here in Israel and other places. And I'm sure we'll be working with them again. So uh, one of the quick takeaways is that we're going to be planning some future pilgrimages next year and the year after, and maybe you'll want to join us, but I'll see more about that. But before I get into the specifics of some of the things that uh, we saw and did and impressions of those, I feel like I need to lay out the geography a little bit. And it's funny because I think that geography is the kind of thing that really appeals to some people. Some of us absolutely love maps and geography and, you know, fascinated with all of that, how things are laid out, where things are. And some people, I think it kind of, you know, their eyes glaze over when you talk about it. But when it comes to understanding the Holy Land, it comes to understanding Israel and making sense of it all, you, you really need to have at least some rough idea of the geography. Um, you know, when you read the Bible, Old Testament or New Testament, it's always talking about these people and events and uh, things that happened here and there and places. And if you, if you don't have a sort of map of that in your head, or you don't have a sort of, you know, visual impression, a sort of imagination of how it's all laid out, I really think that you're prone to, if not misunderstanding the Bible stories, maybe missing some of the nuances. And, and, and missing some of the meaning and impact of some of the stories because the, the relationships of where places are and where things happened really are part of the story, part of the point in both the Old and New Testament. So, so let me just lay out a little bit of geography, and you can try to visualize this. Of course, there's 10 jazillion maps of Israel um, maps of modern Israel, maps of New Testament Israel, maps of the Old Testament Israel. You can find them online. You can find them in the back of most printed Bibles or whatnot. But let's just talk about the land a little bit. So Israel is a country that is bordered by the sea on its west side. So it has a, a west coast that borders the uh, Mediterranean Ocean. 
it is the far east coast of the Mediterranean. So Israel's west coast is the Mediterranean's east coast, much in the way that, say, the California coast is the west coast of the United States, but it's the east coast of the Pacific Ocean. And, and that's really important because all of the empires of the ancient world essentially came through Israel. One of the reasons why it was so significant is because of its strategic location where essentially three continents come together. You have Africa, at least how it worked in the ancient world. The road into Africa uh, starts here at this sort of corner of the Mediterranean. The road into Asia, or at least how the ancient peoples would have approached up into Asia, sort of starts here and then up into Europe. And so where all these come together is this east coast of the Mediterranean, an area sometimes called the Levant, that really is that strategic nexus. And that's one of the reasons why it has been so important for thousands and thousands and thousands of years, who lives there, how it's controlled, the kind of events and conflicts and migrations and everything else that happened there. So Israel's bordered uh, with its west coast on the Mediterranean. And the country is very small from its southern border with Gaza. It is 116 miles of coastline up to its northern border with Lebanon. So that west coast, 116 miles north-south, pretty much its eastern border is the Jordan River. And on the other side of it, through most of the country, is the current country of Jordan. And that distance from the Mediterranean coast to the Jordan River is on average around 50 miles. I mean, obviously it varies because those two things kind of move a little bit, but more or less think of this country as about 116 miles north-south and about 50 miles wide. And the topography of it mostly falls into three sort of zones, thinking north-south. So along the Mediterranean coast, you have this coastal plain where you have a lot of agriculture that's appropriate to a sort of Mediterranean coastal plain, the kinds of things you might see in Spain or Italy along the coasts. And then you have this central ridge of mountains that runs north-south through the country. And then on the other side of those mountains, it falls off into the Jordan River Valley, this great rift that goes down to the lowest point on the planet, really, about 1,300 feet below sea level at the Dead Sea. And that eastern sort of third of the country, if you think of it uh, as one-third Mediterranean coast, one-third mountains, and then one-third uh, falling away on the east into down to the Jordan River and the Dead Sea, is, is a desert. Not a desert with sand dunes, more like a desert you'd see in parts of the southwest U.S., like in eastern California, Nevada, Arizona, that sort of things. Rocky, dry, uh, mountainous. So again, if you're thinking of this almost like a north-south rectangle, you've got the coastal band, the central mountains, and then the eastern deserts falling down to the Jordan River. And if you think about sort of the north and south of the country, as it gets up toward Lebanon, those mountains rise higher and higher and higher. Actually, as you go north up into northern Israel into Lebanon, Mount Hermon, you actually have snow up there, snows of Mount Hermon. There's actually ski resorts up there. And as the central ridge of mountains sort of falls away, coming south down into the Sinai Peninsula, it, it sort of declines and becomes very rocky and a lot lower and flatter. Now, I don't know where you, dear listener, live, and so I don't know what your points of comparison might be, 
But I grew up in Southern California, so I like to say that the nation of Israel is basically San Diego and Orange Counties in California. So the distance from San Diego, where the Mexican border is, up to Los Angeles is about exactly 120 miles. And the width of those counties, San Diego County in the south and Orange County right above it, is about 50 miles. And the topography is very similar. So along the coast in San Diego and Orange counties, you have something that's very much like the Mediterranean coast in Israel. And then as you, if you know that area, as you sort of come in about 10 or 15, 20, 20 miles or so from that, you have a central spine of mountains that runs through Southern California. And as you go over that spine, you, you come down into the Coachella Valley, the Mojave Desert. You have some famous cities like Palm Springs and whatnot out there. Uh, you have the Salton Sea. And the topography out there is very much like that eastern third of the country uh, going down to the Jordan River Valley. So again, I don't know. I know we have listeners all around the United States and overseas, so everybody's point of reference is different. But for those of you who can visualize Southern California, Israel is basically San Diego and Orange counties, basically San Diego up to Los Angeles and and out to uh, around Palm Springs. That's the whole country. And it's laid out much like that. In fact, when you fly into Tel Aviv, having grown up in and around those places, Tel Aviv reminds me a lot of the city of San Diego. It's Mediterranean city, very modern, modern buildings, freeways, everything like that. And that central spine of mountains running up towards Jerusalem rem reminds me very much of the mountain ridge that runs north-south south through San Diego and Orange counties and gets taller as it goes north up towards uh, through Los Angeles and up towards the Sierras. And then again, driving over those mountains down to say Palm Springs or the Coachella Valley, Mojave Desert, very much a, a good way to visualize Israel if you can visualize Southern California. So as far as our itinerary went, we flew into this very modern city of Tel Aviv, uh, spent the night there, and we went up to the ruins of Caesarea Maritima. Now that is a Roman port city that was built by Herod the Great. The Herod the Great that was around at the time of Jesus' birth had improved the second temple and done massive building around the country uh, and also slaughtered the innocents in Bethlehem. We'll talk about that in the next episode. But, but Herod the Great built a city just about 40, 45 minutes north of modern Tel Aviv right on the coast. It, there was not a natural harbor there. So using Roman concrete and construction techniques, he, he made an enclosed harbor, and it was the largest harbor on the Mediterranean for quite some time in the Roman world. So all of this shipping from all around the Mediterranean and the Roman world would come into and out of Caesarea Mar Maritima, and it figures into quite a number of Bible stories. For example, in the book of Acts, when God tells Peter to go to Caesarea and meet this Roman centurion named Cornelius and convert he and his household to Christianity, being the first then Gentile converts, that occurred there in Caesarea. And it's not a surprise that it was a sort of high-ranking Roman military officer because it was very much a Roman city. And near the end of the book of Acts, Paul is sent there for his trial before the Romans, and he appeals to Caesar and then is put on a ship to go to Rome from Caesarea uh, by the governor Festus. So, Caesarea figures into many of these stories. We got to go up and see the ruins of that. It is this ancient port city. There's a Roman forum. There's a, a hippodrome, uh, basically a, 
the, the horse racing circus track thing that they raced chariots around Roman buildings and bathhouses and all these kinds of things. And the modern Israeli government has been doing quite a bit of restoration of some of those ruins. And we got to tour through those. That was quite interesting. And then we headed up uh, through the Jezreel Valley. So if you imagine, again, that north-south country with the coastal band, the center mountains, and falling away down to the Jordan River, there is a, a sort of east-west pass or gap that runs from Caesarea uh, on the northern part of the Israeli coast. And it runs not exactly east-west, but more like kind of northeast, a, a gap in that, those central mountains. And it's very much a fertile farming area called the Jezreel Valley. And it takes you up into the region of Galilee, which is sort of those northern hills that started going up very tall towards Lebanon and the Sea of Galilee up there and, and also uh, Jesus' hometown of Nazareth. So we went up to Caesarea Mar Maritima and then we took a bus up the Jezreel Valley and we stopped in Nazareth to see what is in essence Jesus' hometown. Of course, he was born in Bethlehem, but he grew up in Nazareth. And I'll explain that in the next episode when we talk about Bethlehem. But it's also the place where the Virgin Mary received the visit from the angel Gabriel to announce to her that she would bear the Messiah. So it, the place of the Annunciation, we visited Mary's house um, that's there. And there's a giant church built over it, uh, the Church of the Annunciation. And then we traveled from Nazareth again through that valley, that sort of gap up through and down to the Sea of Galilee. And we stayed a couple of days in Galilee to see the sights around there. After a couple of days there, we traveled down the Jordan River to the ancient city of Jericho that lies on the Jordan River just north of the Dead Sea. And if you recall, there's a story in the Old Testament about how Joshua led the people across the Jordan and they knocked, God knocked down the walls of Jericho. There's a number of other Bible stories that occurred in and around the city of Jericho there, this critical sort of location on the coast of the Jordan River, just north of the Red Sea, with a sort of road through a valley that goes up to Jerusalem. And in, in a car or the bu tour bus that we were in, it's, there's a freeway, and it takes maybe 45 minutes to go up from Jericho to Jerusalem. Of course, it would have taken them a, a good day or so's walk. But Jericho is a super interesting place. It's, as far as I think we can understand, the oldest city in the world. Archaeologists have established ruins in that city going back to 8,000 BC, so 10,000 years old. There were people actually building city structures. I'm not saying it's the oldest place that humans ever were, but the oldest ruins of a city that I believe archaeologists have found anywhere in the world. So this is a very ancient and important place. And anyway, we went up to Jerusalem. We spent, I think, four or five days in Jerusalem, saw all the sites around there, and then we flew home from Tel Aviv. Now, for a very long time, pilgrimages to the Holy Land have often been called the fifth gospel. Not that there's really a fifth gospel, you understand, a new revelation. But let me explain what I mean by that. The four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are like four portraits painted by four different artists of Jesus and the things that he said and did. So they're all describing the same events as eyewitnesses, or perhaps in Luke's case, as someone who interviewed eyewitnesses, 
but they're seeing those things from a unique angle or perspective and relaying them for the audience that's, that they were speaking to. So Matthew is really giving a Jewish perspective and interpretation and writing to Jews. Luke is, in a sense, writing to Gentile Christians. Mark is giving us largely Peter's own impressions. And John is essentially preaching a sermon with his gospel, sharing the important parts that he thinks people need to know to come to saving faith in Christ. But this whole idea of the fifth gospel, which I'm not making up, that's a standard idea that's been around a long time, is that when you go to these places and you, and you take in the sights and the sounds and the smells and you understand the topography and, and the relationship of the places to each other and whatever, it puts it all in this kind of context and it allows your imagination to form you know, images of the events. So when you read about Jesus saying or doing something, now you have a sort of new visualization of, of it that almost amounts to a fifth portrait of the events, um, in addition to the four written Gospels. Again, I'm not suggesting that you have any new information or that it's, you know, competes with Scripture. It's just now you have this fourth sort of visualization in your head of what may have occurred. And so in this and the next episode, I'm not going to give a travelogue of the trip beyond the itinerary that I laid out, but I do want to share a few of these sort of, you know, fifth gospel impressions from a few places that we visited and a few stories from the New Testament to illustrate the sort of interpretive power of visiting the Holy Land. Now, most of the events that are recorded in the four gospels occurred either in the Galilee region around the Sea of Galilee or in the, uh, the hills and mountains above it, like Nazareth, or they occurred down in and around the city of Jerusalem. So in the time that I have left in this episode, I want to share some of these sort of fifth gospel impressions uh, from Galilee, from the region of Galilee, particularly the Sea of Galilee, just a couple of insights into a few gospel stories that you gain from seeing them firsthand. And in the next episode, I'm going to do the same thing with Jerusalem, focusing on a few of the events uh, during Holy Week that are recorded in the Gospels, Jesus' passion, and so forth. But first, before I turn to that, let me ask you to consider supporting this podcast. It's produced by a nonprofit ministry called One Whirling Adventure. The name comes from a G.K. Chesterton quote about church history. And the mission of the ministry is very simple that's to excite and educate people about the historic Catholic faith, and to equip them to live, share, and defend it in the 21st century. And this podcast is one of our major projects to do that, along with the pilgrimages and some other things that we're working on. Now, as a new nonprofit, our budget is very, very small, but it's real. And we have dreams of improving and expanding this podcast and some of the ministry that surrounds it, but we need your help to keep it going and to grow it. And so we have a crowdfunding goal of $35,000 this year that would allow us to produce this podcast and begin to expand it in some interesting ways. One of the things that we get asked for a lot is, can we get transcripts or written materials that go with the podcast? So some of the things that we refer to, some of the Bible stories that we refer to, would, would there be a way for people to download a PDF or find that on the website? And that would take some more time and effort on some people's part to produce that. And another thing that we get asked a lot is, would we do some more episodes about the heritage of Christianity? Not necessarily just church history, but the, the, the Christian civilizational heritage and how that applies to some of the current events that we're living through. How, how do we try to 
harvest or mine the patrimony and the heritage of Christianity and apply it today. And, and I would love to produce those episodes. But again, we have a very, very small budget and it takes time and resources to do this. So uh, if we could reach our crowdfunding goal, we'd be able to expand and do some more of those episodes. We've got some interesting ideas, perhaps even another podcast channel that just focuses on sort of Christian heritage and applying it to the issues of the day. It takes some resources to make this happen and to expand it and grow it. So would you consider going to our website, consideringcatholicism.com, and you can click right there on a support button. There's a hover button and there's a, a link at the top that says support. And we have a a crowdfunding goal. You can give a one-time gift or a recurring monthly gift and help us reach our goal of $35,000 for 2023 so that we can uh, grow and expand this ministry this year and into next year. There's also a link to support in the episode description if you're downloading the episodes on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or whatever. So thank you in advance for your support. Uh, But enough of that for now. Let's talk about some fifth gospel impressions that come from visiting the shores of the Sea of Galilee. It's not actually a sea. It's a, a freshwater lake that sits on the east side of that central spine of mountains in a geological rift that drops dramatically below sea level. So the lake or Sea of Galilee sits at 700 feet below sea level and makes it the lowest freshwater lake on earth. But that means that the hills and the mountains that surround it in the Galilee region seem relatively steep and high when you're on its shores or out on the lake itself. The lake sits nestled in these hills like a bowl which are much greener than you might expect. To the north, they rise in forested slopes to snow-capped peaks like Mount Hermon in the Golan Heights or on the Lebanese border. To the east, they go up over the Golan Heights and then down into the dry hill country of Syria, eventually heading toward Damascus and beyond. More about that in a moment. Now, this bowl can result in Fierce winds that swirl down suddenly from the mountains, whipping up these dramatic storms on the lake that have steep waves. And as you probably know, these storms on the lake figure into several stories in the Gospels. Now, the lake isn't very big by the standards of lakes in other parts of the world. I I live on the shores of Lake Michigan, and it's nothing like that. It's only 16 miles long, running north to south, and six miles wide, and it's widest point east to west. When you're standing on the shore, you can see the hills on the other side of the lake in all directions. Our group last week took a boat ride out into it, and you're never out of sight even out in the middle of the lake. We cruised along past the gospel towns of Capernaum and Magdala, where Mary of Magdalene came from, past the hillsides where Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount, and multiplied the loaves and the fish to feed the 5,000, and where he appeared to Peter and the apostles after the resurrection. You're really drawn into the gospel stories about Jesus and the disciples crisscrossing the lake and encountering people all around it. Like when he crossed over to the Gentile or non-Jewish area of Gadara on the eastern shore. And if you remember, he met a man possessed by demons and he commanded the demons to leave the man and go into a herd of swine, which sort of jumped off this cliff into the lake. So. Anyway, I've made my point about it being a freshwater lake, but it's the biggest lake in the region, which is why they thought of it as a sea. So 
from here on out for the rest of the episode, I'm going to call it the Sea of Galilee because that's how we know it in the Gospels. Now, it's full of fish, predominantly one that's similar to tilapia and excellent for eating. In fact, fish from the Sea of Galilee were caught and processed in towns like Magdala and Capernaum and then salted and seasoned and exported throughout the Roman world. There are actually stories of Galilee fish being eaten as a delicacy by the aristocratic class in the city of Rome. At its southern end, it empties into the Jordan River, which runs south, dropping like another 700 feet into the Dead Sea, which lies about 1,400 feet below sea level, which makes it the lowest place on Earth. I mean, excluding the deepest points of the ocean, obviously. Now, the salt content of the Dead Sea is 10 times greater than the oceans, which means that you can float on the surface, which our group did last week. You just lie back and you can't sink. You can't even put your legs down to try to tread water. Now, the reason that it's so salty is that the Dead Sea sits in this deep bowl with nowhere to drain out, and the soil doesn't absorb the salts and minerals that flow off of the slopes and the mountains to the north. So they all just accumulate and produce this really weird but kind of cool effect. Uh, in fact, there's a lot of cosmetics and skincare products that are made from the mud of the Dead Sea. There's little shops and everything around there that sell them. So anyway, back to the Sea of Galilee. Here are two or three insights into the gospel stories that I think you gain by visiting it and seeing and smelling and feeling it for yourself. First, seeing the geography, the topography, and standing on the shore helps you to understand, perhaps, why Jesus recruited most of his disciples from the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. Now, bear with me for a moment as I try to lay out a little more geography. But remember earlier in this episode when we talked about the west coast of Israel along the east coast of the Mediterranean and how for the ancient world it was the, like the nexus of three continents, Africa, Asia, and Europe. So from the dawn of history, and I mean like eight or 10,000 years ago before the pyramids even went up in Egypt, the primary route connecting the emerging civilizations of Egypt and Mesopotamia and what is now Eastern Europe and Southern Russia, was this road that ran naturally along the beach from the Nile Delta in the south, up the coast of Israel and Lebanon, and into Southern Turkey. So any trade, commerce, envoys, ideas, messengers, whatever, would have traveled by foot or horse or donkey or camel or cart or whatnot or chariot along that road. And when they came to that gap in the spine of mountains that we talked about earlier that runs east-west through the north-south center of Canaan or Israel, there was a fork of that road that ran sort of northeast through the Jezreel Valley over a pass in the hills, past a little village called Nazareth, and then wound down 20 miles through that rift further on dropping through this narrow valley right out onto the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee by the little fishing towns of Magdala and Capernaum. Now, remember how the sea sits in this bowl of surrounding hills? There isn't much room between the shore of the lake and the slopes around it. So when that road dropped out of that narrow pass at Magdala, it made a hard left turn along the shoreline and passed through Capernaum four miles later. 
and then it continued around the north side of the Sea of Galilee for about another five miles to its northeast corner and started heading northeast up through another gap in the hills towards the city of Damascus in Syria, which has always been one of the most strategic centers of commerce in the Near East. Because once the road passed Damascus, it continued east into Mesopotamia, the land between the two rivers. Now, this is where the ancient civilizations of Babylon and Assyria rose. And continuing through those empires, the road continued east into Persia, which is now Iran, and then up into the mountains of Afghanistan. And from there, the road forked north into Central and East Asia, so China, and southward into India. Okay, so I'm throwing a lot of directions and names at you, but here's the point. One of the primary superhighways of the ancient world that connected empires and civilizations and races and languages, the path for much of the ancient world's commerce and armies and immigration and political envoys and mail, ran right through a little fishing town called Capernaum. And in that town lived men like the brothers Peter and Andrew, or another set of brothers named James and John, or the Jew that served as a Roman tax collector named Matthew. In fact, when you visit Capernaum today, you gain a whole new perspective on why Matthew was perhaps stationed in Capernaum. I mean, perhaps it wasn't just to hassle fishermen like Peter for a percentage of their catch, but for the Romans to collect tolls and taxes on all the commerce that ran along this road. Now, archaeologists have discovered Peter's house in Capernaum. I'm not going to take the time to explain how they know it's Peter's house, but it's Peter's house. And there's a Catholic church built around Peter's house, and our group went to Mass there last week. And standing there, outside Peter's house in the town of Capernaum that the road ran through, and you're looking at the beach not more than 75 yards away, where he and the other fishermen kept their boats, and with the steep slopes rising not more than a couple hundred yards away in the other direction, and the road going between the two, you realize that in some sense, the whole world literally ran past Peter's doorstep, and that he could step out of his front door and basically go anywhere in the world from there. And perhaps this is why Jesus recruited so many of his disciples from Capernaum and did so many of his miracles and major teachings within a three or four mile radius of it. I think that some of us have this impression that Galilee was this backwater town and Peter and the apostles were sort of country bumpkins. It's true that many of them didn't have formal educations or any academic credentials. They were mostly skilled tradesmen. But they were skilled tradesmen who, every day of their life, had mingled with Greeks, Romans, Persians, Egyptians, and merchants, and government officials, and military men, and refugees that passed through their town. And so, when the time was right, Jesus, from the little village of Nazareth, 20 miles up into the hills, came down to Capernaum on the shores of Galilee, along the road that ran to the rest of the world. And there, he began to preach and perform miracles and recruit a few hardworking men who he planned to eventually send out along that road to the ends of the earth. Now, they may never have traveled to Rome or Egypt or India themselves. 
but they'd grown up meeting Romans and Egyptians and Indians almost every day. And when Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount, which when you visit that hillside along the shore, you realize that the road ran right past that hill where he was preaching the sermon, or, or when he multiplied the loaves and fishes to feed thousands on another little hillside along the beach about a half mile away, you wonder how many of these travelers got caught up in the crowds and heard the sermons and saw the healings and ate the bread that foreshadowed his death and resurrection and the Eucharist. I'm suggesting that when you stand along these hills over the shore of the Sea of Galilee, you realize that it wasn't an accident that all of this happened here. It was God's strategy. This was literally God's beachhead from which he spread the gospel to the four corners of the earth. In fact, there is another hill close nearby called Mount Arbel that overlooks the road that runs from the Mediterranean down to the town of Magdala and bends north towards Capernaum. And it was here on the top of this hill or mountain called Arbel, overlooking that road, that Jesus gave the apostles the great commission that Matthew records in the 28th chapter of his gospel, where Jesus gathers them and tells them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And surely, I am with you always to the very end of the age. And from that road, they could do just that. There's another spot along this shoreline between Capernaum and Magdala that gives us um, another sort of fifth gospel insight. It's a rocky little beach where fishermen from ancient times dragged their boats ashore next to a natural spring just under where that road that we've been talking about ran. And it was here, after the resurrection, that Jesus appeared on this rocky little beach to Peter and some of the other disciples that had returned home to go fishing. The story is told in John chapter 21. They had been fishing all night and they had got nothing. It was early in the morning and so they saw a man that they couldn't quite make out in the dim light sort of yelling out to them, telling them to put their nets in on the other side of the boat. And when they did, they caught this large number of fish. At that point, John realizes that it's Jesus and tells Peter, who leaps into the water and swims to shore. Now, the others bring in the boat and the fish, and they find that Jesus has prepared a fire and a breakfast for them. And they sit and eat together. And then Jesus has this curious conversation with Peter. Again, this is recorded in John chapter 21. Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he answered, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, Take care of my sheep. 
The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. Now, the usual way that we understand this passage, which is an entirely correct way to understand it, is that it is a reversal of Peter's denial of Jesus on the night that Jesus was arrested. If, if you remember, at the Last Supper, Peter boasted that even if all the other disciples abandoned Jesus, he would not. And Jesus looks at him at the Last Supper and says, sadly, Peter, before the cock crows, you will three times deny that you even know me. And then that happens. So, having denied Jesus three times, here on this beach after the resurrection, Jesus restores Peter by having him affirm his love three times. Now, that is a great, honest, and true interpretation of that passage. There is an important church that's built on this site it's called the Church of the Primacy of St. Peter, because it is here in this conversation that Peter is given his commission to be the head of the apostles. Now, inside that church is the rocky ledge on which the breakfast conversation occurred. And standing on that beach and in that church before that ledge, I think we discover two other insights into this cryptic conversation. First, Protestants have always accused Catholics of favoring works over faith. Now, we've talked about this on the podcast often, especially with our friend Ed the Protestant. Protestant evangelicals like to say that all we need to do is love Jesus. That's how we're saved, by loving Jesus. He doesn't require us to do anything in return. But standing there on the shore of Galilee, where that conversation occurred, it should occur to us that we're missing the greatest illustration of how Catholicism actually frames the issue of faith and works. Jesus asks Peter, just as he asks each of us, do you love me? And we answer, yes, I love you, Lord. And then he responds, then feed my sheep. You see, true love requires action, and it bears fruit. And it's fair to ask, if you love, then where's the action in your love? Where's the fruit of your love? So again, Jesus asks us, do you really love me? And we say, yes, of course, I already told you. I love you, Lord. And he says, then do the work of love. And a third time he asks us, do you love me? And we distressed say, Lord, yes, yes, you know that we love you. And he says, then where are the works of your love? You see, it wasn't enough for Peter to reverse his denials with mere words. Jesus asked him for works of love. Now, not all of us are called to be priests or preachers or professors or podcasters. There are many, many ways to feed Jesus' sheep with acts of love. But if we don't do any of those, 
can we really look him in the eye and tell him that we love him? If our love is just a sentiment, just an emotion, is it real? Real love takes action with real people in the real world. And I think that visiting the Church of the Primacy of St. Peter along the shore of Galilee there reminds us that the love of faith comes with works. So, one last fifth gospel type insight from the shores of Galilee. This whole breakfast conversation with Peter on that rocky ledge over the fishing beach is held right under the road that we've been speaking about. I mean, maybe 100 yards down the slope from it. It's not too hard to imagine that while they were having that breakfast and talking about love and action, people were walking or riding along that road. Jews and Gentiles, men and women, Romans and Greeks and Persians and Assyrians and Egyptians and literally God only knows who else. And as Jesus has this conversation with Peter, you wonder if they are hearing the footsteps, the the hooves, the wagon wheels overhead. And Jesus looks Peter in the eye and asks him if he loves him and tells him that if he does, he will go up there and down that road and start feeding the Lord's sheep wherever they are. Well, that's enough for this episode of our Holy Land Diaries. In a couple of days, I'll release a second Holy Land Diary, and we'll talk about insights that we gained from being in and around the city of Jerusalem, particularly related to the last week of Jesus' life there and his passion and death and resurrection. So I hope you'll be looking for that episode in the next couple of days, and that it'll be helpful to you to prepare yourself for Good Friday and Easter. And maybe, just maybe, someday you'll consider coming with me for a Holy Land pilgrimage. Thank you for listening. My name is Greg Smith. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, would you please hit the like and subscribe buttons wherever you get your podcasts? And please share it with others. And if you're curious about the Catholic worldview and faith, the Church and its saints, or Catholic history, culture, and art, then visit consideringcatholicism.com. And email me to let me know what you think. Greg at consideringcatholicism.com. Dot com.